Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Casper Turkayl. Casper is the author of The Power of Ritual and the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Stephanie Lambring. Stephanie Lambring is a solo indie artist from Nashville. You can get connected with Casper and Stephanie and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Casper Turkayl with me, and uh, not only is Casper a good friend of mine and just a wonderful, delightful human being, Casper, uh, you do lots of really cool work in the world, including having an award or acclaimed podcast, uh, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Such a wonderful po- uh, podcast. I was one of those evangelicals that didn't grow up with Harry Potter, so I don't really have quite the connection to Harry Potter as I'm sure a lot of your fans do, and as you're probably yourself, but needless to say it's an incredible podcast that I think really in a lot of ways really captures the heart of the work that you're up to in the world but before we go into all of that and before we jump into talking about your new book who is Casper Turkayl to Casper Turkayl well hi Mason good to be with you again um well I will say at the moment Casper Turkayl is uh rounder more <laughs> more, more fluffy <laughs> than he was a year ago um but <laughs> that's uh, that's the COVID-19 for you um no I'm I'm uh yeah I I mostly think of myself as as someone who often is a loving outsider to traditional religious communities um and someone who likes to think about the future of community religion um and meaning making uh so I I, I just nerd out about a lot of stuff um so yeah religion nerd maybe <laughs> <laughs> including your purgatory sweatshirt uh, you know what? We were just talking about this before we went on air. But yeah, I'm wearing a sweatshirt that just says purgatory as if it was like some sort of school that someone went to. Right. It often takes people a couple seconds to be like, uh-huh, what? It does really have that kind of college, <laughs> like that 80s college feel, like something right? my dad would wear that would just say like Harvard or Princeton. <laughs> Even though there's no way he, he would ever some... be able to go to one of those schools. I, I was going to say, I thought he went to like some South Dakota community college. <laughs> yeah. The, well, you're not very wrong in that. So anyway, let's talk about your book. I think it's an incredible book. I I loved reading it. It's called The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday uh, Activities into Soulful Practices. See, I was really, I was nervous for you to read it because you're so smart and like, you know so much about theology. I was like, this book is really written, I I would say for like a spiritual beginner, like me five years ago. So I was very nervous about you reading it, but I appreciate you saying that. Well, I I mean, first off, I don't think I'm all that smart, but second off, like I would much rather read a book like yours than read something from Carl Bart. let's just say. (laughs) Take that, Carl. But yeah, put that on the table. So, but I'm curious, you know, we'll, we'll dig into kind of the more of the nitty gritty of the book, but I am curious, what's something that you learned factually 
while you were writing the book? Maybe a, a thing that you didn't know before and then in your research, you're like, wow, I wouldn't have known that. That's a great question. Yeah, in many ways, the book was really built on research that I'd done over the preceding four or five years. So I, I didn't find myself doing huge amounts of research as I was writing it. Um, but one of the things that I guess that, that, that I did um, spend some time in is looking at some of the scientific studies that kind of give a different set of evidence, because I don't want to say religious practices don't have their own evidence base, but a scientific evidence base for the value of, of different spiritual practices. So mm. for example, spending time in nature doing, you know, a, a, a kind of a practice where you might be really paying attention to beauty, for example, has all of these benefits on your stress levels and your, your, your levels of calm, your sense of control over your own life. So I, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't see myself as a science writer at all. But it, one of the things that the publisher kind of, kind of nudged me towards was, you know, for a reader that's in a secular context, who is going to be very suspicious of religion, certainly of kind of religious institutions, building up an evidence base that, that looked at some of the science behind these practices was, was something that was new to me um, and ended up being a wonderful conversation with the, with the guy who wrote the, uh, the foreword for the book, uh, Dakar Keltner, who's, who hosts the Greater Good Science uh, Center podcast that you might know, Science of Happiness. Um, and so we, like I led him on a little kind of pilgrimage through Paris while we were both there at the same time <laughs> randomly. Um, and then, and he told me about some of the, you know, the kind of the scientific evidence around around various practices, which was which was super interesting. Well, you'll need to send me all of that because when I write my thesis, you know, a lot of it I want a lot of good pop science that kind of builds my case around similar topics. So you'll need Very to, you'll cool. need to send me your resources at some point. Well, I'll give you I'll give you a little sneak hint of something that's coming. Um, the Templeton World Charities Foundation is about to do a big investment into a whole new Ooh. slew of um, scientific research around things like prayer, centering prayer, um, and various other spiritual practices. So it feels like that kind of, you know, the, the conversation around meditation, the way that it became both more secularized, but also more scientifically evidence-based. I think we're going to see a next generation, you know, everything from singing to maybe even group dance, like sacred dance as a, as a, as a scientific research. Wow. Well, I'm excited for this. <laughs> so this is your first book, right? It is. Yes. I know you've like had some published, you know, with the how we gather stuff, but uh, but as a book itself, this is your first. It's a wild ride. Yeah, especially during the pandemic. I was like, one day I'll go on a book tour. The most hilarious thing is I still haven't been in a bookstore, so I've not like seen it <laughs> on a shelf. So to me, oh. I'm like, is it really published? I don't know. <laughs> Supposedly, rumor has it. So with this being your first book, what was something that you learned about yourself as you wrote the book? Oh, my God. Don't do it. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> totally it's totally the meme of like don't do it oh i did it <laughs> um one of the best descriptions i heard for the process of writing and i'm not someone who can just do two hours at like 5 a.m till 7 a.m i don't know how those people do it uh, i i really need to like get away outside of my own house like let my brain kind of get into it for two days and then hopefully something emerges but the best description i heard was it's like being locked in a room with the most stupid version of yourself <laughs> because at least if you have the critical voices that I do in my head. I don't even need um, to write for that to be the case. That's just all day, every day. But, you know, the, the biggest advice that I got that helped me was you don't have to say anything new. Because every time I felt like I was articulating something, you know, and, I, and I'm describing Lectio Divina using Harry Potter. And then I'm talking about pilgrimage, but, you know, in, in, in my own backyard. Um, 
I always felt like I wasn't saying anything new. And so it was such a relief when a mentor said, you don't have to write anything new. You just have to say something old in a way that new people can hear. Mm. And that was a real relief because I was like, okay, you know, it's, it's not going to be for everyone, but for this group of people, it can really mean something. Yeah. And That's and the genius has. of and, someone like Rob Bell, I think. Right. It's actually, a, I mean, people who do that very well, that translation, that's a real gift. It's yeah. a real gift. Yeah. I think it's, you do that. Well, you know, I, that was because I was a youth pastor for a few years. <laughs> I had no choice but to translate what I was learning in seminary to a bunch of 13-year-old kids who just got broken up with. Turns out that's most of us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So at the very beginning of the book, you talk about this paradigm shift that's happening. Mm. What is this shift that's taking place? I think for me, the most interesting thing is the way in which more and more people are finding a sense of spiritual connection, meaning making, deep community, even religious practices outside of of, uh, of kind of official religious spaces. Um, and so in our last conversation, you know, we talked about some of that, where we were looking at fitness communities like CrossFit mm -hmm. and SoulCycle, giving people, you know, a sense of connection to something bigger that leads to people looking for pastoral support from their fitness instructors. So that's, that's one example of that kind of movement. But I think, you know, something that I've been working on over the last few years in, in my work is, is looking at how people are trying to find that in the workplace as well, for example, right? That you're having meditation rooms and you're having corporate chaplains and you're having mm. all of these examples, you know, people coming to work expecting to find meaning, purpose and community at their workplace. So it's not as if there's a third space that's separate from work. The third space is coming into the second space, as it were, of, of work. Um, so, so the paradigm shift is really at a, at a meta level, this movement away from just the church as the center of people's religious life and a sort of unbundling uh, so that people are finding it at everything from a Beyonce concert to a hike, to an app, to a, uh, you know, to going home to their parents to celebrate Christmas, but then going back to their yoga studio. So it, it, it's this kind of um, dispersion nearly of, of, of religious life. And within that, it's of course being changed. It's not the same when it lands in a new location. Yeah, it seems like it's less of this rise of secularization and more That's of right. just this convergence of all of these different aspects of life that used to be disparate. That's right. One, one of the biggest mistakes I think people make when they look at the data is to say, oh, look at this growing number of people who are non-religious, right? And at this point, it's 40% of millennials, my generation. Um, and that number may even go higher for Gen Zs. So it's very easy to say, oh, they're all atheists. They're all not interested in, in religious life. That's not true, right? It's a much, much smaller proportion, um, somewhere between four and 6% of people within that group who say, oh, I'm an atheist. And actually there's this whole slew of people who are like, oh, I'm nothing in particular. All the language is negation, right? Spiritual, but not religious, nothing in particular, none of the above. It, it's not yet ready to, an, to embrace something, um, but it's also not embracing a completely a religious yeah. uh, or, or non-religious identity. So it's this kind of this cloudy middle. Uh, and, and I'm very interested to see what the future will bring, because it wouldn't surprise me if there actually are very fast growing religious movements a couple of years, maybe decades down the line. Because when we when you look at new religious movements, often the people who are most engaged are the ones who came from a kind of non-religious or a religious context. Um, so who knows what the future will bring? But I, I think there's 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 that ripe potential for a for a cult leader <laughs> to well, step in. I hope you're the first one. I'll I'll definitely follow you <laughs> to Jonestown. Hey, we'll have a good time on the way. Though. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Well, I am curious. Uh, you you kind of mentioned you know a lot of different aspects that have contributed to this. 
how has the internet in particular helped create this shift? It seems like to be a pretty significant factor. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a couple of structural factors that scholars will point to. One of them being, for example, women entering the workforce. So mm -hmm. the free labor of women in congregations could no longer be relied upon to run essentially community life as as, as it would have if you look back at that kind of apex of religious um, uh, affiliation in the 50s. But the internet is absolutely at the center, I think, of what we're seeing. And, and not so much just the, the, the practical ways in which people want to donate, for example, rather than writing in something in the pew and giving an envelope, right? We're, we're used to a subscription model. So there's some technical things like that. But I think much more importantly is the kind of paradigm of how we understand legitimate power. Um, and that, you know, most churches are built within a polity that, that is built on hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? That the person who's in charge has direction, has authority, has power, um, to send you to this parish or to tell you that this is wrong or right. And with an internet kind of, you know, a, a digital native generation, our way of understanding authority is where does the crowd go, right? What's upvoted on Amazon? Um, what's popular on Netflix? Like where power is networked and we look at where people are clumping together to find the, the, the you know, most interesting article to read on the website, whatever it is. And so we have these two fundamental different approaches to power that clash. Um, and, and it feels honestly, you know, if, if you walk into a congregation, nearly always there are pews that are facing the front, right? Mm -hmm. That was one of the first feelings I remember feeling. I didn't grow up religious, walking into a congregation, seeing like, why are they all facing the same way? Why is this not a circle, right? Like some, some basic elements like that, that manifest in all sorts of ways just nudge people all the time to think this is not for me this is not for me um so i think the internet is is at the heart of of some of the uh, the kind of structural challenges for the institutional church it also reveals some interesting ways in which people are participating in, in religious communities that will probably indicate what the future will look like. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, even, even think about podcasting, right? The ways in which people can have conversations mm. with one another distributed to a large platform, right? You're not stuck with just one person giving a sermon. If you, you, can, you can access the best sermons out there and, and then have a conversation with three or four other people that you're that you're interested in in hearing their opinions of. So it, it just changes the way in which people engage with meaning. Yeah, I mean it's just incredible to even think that someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who was this college student years ago, who yeah. just had an internet connection and a vision, and that's all he needed. And before we know it, uh we've got people storming the Capitol just a few years later, right? Like the amount of power that one can have where in a decades ago, someone like that would have never been able to yeah. unfold the kind of events that un have unfolded because of a platform like Facebook. And it's all because some kid at one point in college had an internet connection and this dream. Uh, it's really incredible how democratized the internet has made power. Um, yeah. do, do you sense that for some people, especially people in our age who may or may not have grown up religious, but you were talking a little bit ago about how a lot of these spheres of life that once were disparate and once were segregated have now kind of converged into one. Do you sense that maybe even folks our age, whether they come from a religious background or not, feel like there's almost like this intrusiveness in their lives, the, the fact that they're converging, that they therefore, like, they want to sit in yeah. a pew on a Sunday and they want that space to just be that and it have nothing to do with 
their nine to five. Like, do you sense that like there's kind of this like counter movement at all? Like, it might be significantly yeah. smaller, but have you noticed that in your research or uh, did you even kind of sense that as you were writing the book? There's a couple of pieces in there. The first is that any trend will always have a counter trend. <clears throat> That's just one of one of the things that, that you learn when you're looking at, at kind of trend spotting. Um, a couple of places where I see what you're pointing to. Um, Nadia Boltz-Weber talks about this in, in her work. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nadia Boltz-Weber talks about this when she's, you know, when she described creating um, the House for All Sinners and Saints, where the, the liturgy was extremely traditional. Mm. And that was something that people loved, that it had this authenticity, it had this kind of sense of an ancient lineage that they could be part of, that it wasn't all on them. Of course, she paired it with a very beautiful and progressive theology. And so that's a, that's a perfect example of that kind of old and new mix. I would say, honestly, Mason, that, that, that although that that desire might be there to set something apart. Um, the, the power of capitalism and, and the, the way it shapes our brains. I mean, I noticed this in myself, right? That when you, you're like, oh, this is a beautiful scene in nature or like, isn't this a beautiful moment of quiet? I'm like, let me record that and put that on Snap or yeah. put it on Instagram. Like it's so, it, I think it's very, very difficult for us to kind of to put a pause between that instinct of commodifying and the experience that we're having or that we're looking for. Um, but you, I mean, you definitely see the hunger for it, whether it's the, the, the number of retreats that are out there now that people are going on, you know, a practice that I write about in the book is that the example of the tech Sabbath, which definitely has had a bit of an explosion in Silicon Valley, right. Where the most, uh, the most engaged in the world of tech, right? Parents who are the head programmers at Twitter, for example, will not allow their children to use a cell phone until you know they're 15 or something because they're so conscious of the impact it has on our brains. Mm. So I, I, I think that dynamic is, is definitely real. Um, but the, the, the thing that I was convinced by at the end of the book was that just trying to do these things on our own to interrupt those patterns that desire to, to consume or to commodify or to share we can't do it on our own. And so that's that's why I'm interested in religious tradition. That's why I'm interested in traditional structures of community, because I think they give us some of the DNA of how you can withstand and resist these impulses and these, these structures that shape our lives in such mm -hmm. a detrimental way. At the core of this shift, there seems to be this sense of a difference between what religion is and what spirituality is. And there is mm. this sort of distinction that's being made. What do you think this difference between religion and spirituality is? Well, the perception is that religion is institutional and that spirituality is personal. Mm. That mm -hmm. perception is false. Like, it, it's just wrong. Um, I mean, when you start entering the conversation of how do we define religion, very, very quickly you start to see that the limitations, certainly in the American imagination, of what religion is. Yeah. And it's so shaped, I'm sorry to say, by, by a Protestant history yeah. Right. Going back to Luther of that it is about faith yeah. alone. I'm in a religious studies course right now uh, in seminary. And one of the things that I didn't know up until this course was that the word religion wasn't even a word until like the 18th or 19th century, up until just a few centuries ago. No one had the category of how we understand religion. And it was by Western Christians, uh, maybe they're Protestant, right. probably Protestant, that they started creating this term. Uh, or That's they created right. this term in order to understand other religious traditions, but they those exactly. other religious tra traditions didn't think of themselves in the way that you know these Protestants were thinking of 
them. Amen. It, it was part of a colonial project. And, and particularly you see it in Southeast Asia where you have the creation of Hinduism as some, some kind of coherent label um, yeah. to apply to a vast array of different folklore, cultural, uh, spiritual practices, traditions, uh, stories that, that get bundled up into this single identity. And, and now you see all sorts of impacts of it, right? When you look at Hindu nationalism in, in, in India. Um, well, the same is true here in the sense that it's really limited our imagination of what counts as religion and what counts as spirituality. Um, so the, the core question in the American imagination is, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? It's about Which, do, you do, do you, Casper? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I was on the phone with a bishop recently and they were like, uh, just by a, out of interest, are you a Christian? I was like, the short answer is no, but the longer answer is yes. Uh, so we'll talk about that. You're wearing time. purgatory, but are you going there? <laughs> well, since it was abolished by the Catholic Church <laughs> a little while ago, thankfully I'm spared. Um, but but the the essential I think uh, realization for me and the reason why the book ended up being called the power of ritual is that if we start with that belief conversation everything shuts down straight away right people are very very hesitant um, and I'm, by people I mean people who are not religious not engaged with the church the people I I, I try to serve um, but if you go in to talk about practices and ritual actually you find a real eagerness and openness for people to explore questions around spirituality and religion. Um, and, and I think you can see that in the you know huge growth in astrology and tower reading and crystals yeah. and some things that we may look at and say, oh, that, that looks a little naive or that hasn't got as rich a theological you know, uh, history for, for, for us to engage with, some of which is correct, some of which isn't. Um, but it, it's a different way into this conversation that makes people feel safe and for me, it invites people to share the practices they already have and to consider them with this kind of spiritual lens and think about, oh, why do I always cook that particular recipe on the day my mother died? Or why do I listen to this song or reread this book or, or go to this place at this special time in my life? And, and to say, hey, look, here's a foundation from which you can build a spiritual life. It doesn't mean you have to adopt this kind of very monotone um, image of, of what religion looks like in, in, in our popular imagination. also really like about your book is how you recognize that these practices connect us deeper with ourselves, with others, and with the divine. So it's not mm. that it's just one of those or two of those, but it's all of these components that it's connecting right. us to. Are there like any practices that you have found that really integrate all of those different aspects of our lives? Mm. I, you know, this will be a different answer for everyone. For me, it's singing singing oh. with other people harmony singing oh my god cold play 
<laughs> I, I'll do it. I'll bet like no. There's no nothing more integrative than Coldplay. <laughs> just just Chris Martin there looking looking fine in a tight t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, it's all the senses. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> no, but I I grew up singing a lot at home and and um have loved uh, singing with a, a project choir in Vermont called called Northern Harmony, where we sing folk music from around the U.S., but also um, the the Caucasus in Georgia, uh, Eastern Europe and, and South Africa and further beyond. And it, it, for me, kind of being able often often singing in a different language to me also really oh. helps because I'm not. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not struggling with the theology of the words that I'm saying. Like I I've learned what it meant, but I can also kind of put that aside and just just be in the sound. Um, and it yeah, it gives me a sense of stillness within myself. But of course, you're you're making that sound with other people. So there's a sense of of becoming part of a collective, and then that for me has a you know a transcendent quality as well of of of, of it being an offering or, or 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 something that goes beyond just you know, the beauty of what we're creating. It's reflecting something, something more than that, which you might call God. Um, so that practice for me is, is, is very important. I really resonate with that. I, I'm a big like punk rock fan and hardcore fan. So, you know, maybe a little different than Coldplay, but nonetheless, I, what I love about something that's as aggressive and dissonant as something like hardcore music or punk music is the singing isn't so much about the words. Really, mm-hmm. and if it is, you know, it's often really political or whatever. But a lot of times, like the singing is really just an instrument onto itself, and therefore, you, the the singing, in addition to the rest of the music accompanying it, is meant to just, you know, create these sort of vibrations or these frequencies right. that that reverberate throughout your body uh, and make you move in a certain way. Uh, And I certainly feel that when I go to a punk show or a hardcore show and the way in which, you know, I I have no idea what they're saying or, you you know, it's not very clear what they're saying because, you know, it's a loud punk rock show. But nonetheless, all of the instrumentation, including the vocals, just resonate through your body and you can't help but jump around right. and and be a part of this collective of people that more than likely are strangers and to feel like you're kind of a part of a thing it's really incredible how the sound of something like punk music or hardcore music can do that and i'm sure that's you know probably the case for lots of different kinds of genres of music but for me totally. in particular it's really been uh it's been punk music uh, you'll have to give us some recommendations mason what, what we need oh, to listen to if, if we're new to hardcore you know <laughs> I don't know if you need that. You mean you're looking at me and thinking it's more Mariah Carey than than Mason Meninga's playlist? Yeah, I I mean, I will say, you know, you do have kind of the look of someone who really likes the national. If you're (laughs) if you like the national at all, which I'm a huge national fan, but like just kind of that, like very professional looking, but like, you know, living in the high rise of New York. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we call that reading for filth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In reading this book, one of the things that I could hear as sort of a concern from someone is yeah. that if these spiritual practices are abstracted from their religious traditions, that yeah. sort of in turn can kind of become the spiritual colonialism or, or imperialism. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I think about even yeah. for non-Christian rituals being abstracted from their traditions. I, th- I think of, you know, something like witchcraft becoming this really popular thing and absolutely potentially being abstracted from its uh, original tradition. 
you know, that could certainly cause problems for those practices and for those traditions. So can you talk a little bit more about how we ought to think about that and what you would encourage even for kind of that spiritual but not religious person as Definitely. they want to engage with these different rituals, how they can also do so in a way that doesn't end up kind of becoming this spiritual imperialism? Yeah, such an important question, Mason. I'm grateful that you asked it. I would say I would answer this in two halves. Um, the first is to be very, very careful, right? Um, and and one of the reasons why I anchored so much of the book in, in Christian practices is because I know that the majority of the readers are going to be kind of post-Christian in the sense that they might not have even been raised by it, but like me, grew up in a country where the Christian, you know, Christianity is the, is the dominant religious culture. And so that's going to be the reference points that people have. So my first invitation is for people to really explore the traditions which are connected to their family of origin or to the to the place that they grew mm. up. So to, to start by looking at, you know, the life that you're living and then connect it to the, the, the practices of, of that particular tradition. Um, so that was my was my first angle. And to do that really in opposition to uh, some of the spiritual tourism that you're pointing to, uh, you certainly have it. Uh, with kind of Wiccan traditions, but especially now and, and in the US, a lot of indigenous traditions. Um, mm. So you think about medicine ceremonies, you know, certainly in, in Silicon Valley, that is everywhere and everyone has, yeah. you know, had their had their shaman, shamanic journey. Yeah. Um, and and oft, often the way that that's done is like, okay, we're going to go, you know, for three days to a certain place and then come back and there's no longer term connection. So I, I, I really am trying to offer people a different way in into their spiritual exploration by looking at the, the traditions that are authentically within their within their religious history. However, uh, well, and one more point on that. I think, well, yes, I'll, clearly there's a lot to say. However, on the other side of things, I'm very suspicious of narratives that put religious traditions uh, traveling through history in pneumatic tubes, right? Like religious uh, cultures have always engaged one another and influenced one another and changed and grown out of one another. And so to position one spiritual tradition as uh, completely out of bounds, I, I think is just historically incorrect. Um, that encounter is happening at a much faster and bigger scale now. Um, and certainly if you grew up in an interfaith household, it's happening in your own home, yeah. right? So, so, so any notion of purity, I think is completely misguided. Um, so within that, how do you then do it successfully and, and respectfully? For me, there's, there's a couple of things that are really important. One is relationship. So you don't just take up a practice because you've read about it or you saw about it, you saw it somewhere, um, but you go and, and learn from someone who can teach you and is willing to teach you. Uh, second one is that you, that you do that learning, that you learn about its history, you learn about its context, and you, you practice it as best you can. This relates back to the singing. So for example, when we're singing South African music, we spend a lot of time learning about the pronunciation or the particular language that it's sung in, right? That, it, that it's a way of honoring that, that tradition. And the third and final piece is really thinking about power. I think it's very different to think about a secular person, you know, taking a practice like Lectio Divina, as we do on the Harry Potter podcast, a, a traditional European Christian practice, um, which has been part of the dominant, you know, majority culture and, and has a lot of power um, versus, you know, a, a uh, an indigenous practice from Peru, for yeah. example, from particular, uh, uh, from a particular tradition that doesn't have that kind of cultural and economic power. Um, so for me, I, I have many, many more qualms when it's done in, in that kind of uh, appropriative way without acknowledgement, without relationship, without learning. 
and, and, and without, frankly, even economic um, uh, kind of reparations or, or pay. So that, that's how I think about it, but it's, it's complex. Um, and, I, and I think it's foolish to land honestly on, on one side of why well, everything's okay, it's just your spiritual journey. And also like, you can't touch anything um, yeah. because that's just not how the world is mm-hmm. and, or how it should be, frankly. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's extremely helpful as I think through this too. You mentioned singing as one of these practices, but what is another or other everyday activities that you've turned into soulful practices? Yeah, so for, for me, the, the the practice that I open the book with and that we practice on the podcast is reading. Um, and I think this is honestly one of the big gifts that religious culture can give the secular world is is thinking um, or is really sharing different ways of engaging with everyday things like reading. So often we read either to be informed or to be entertained or maybe for escape, um, right? It, we When we read a book like Harry Potter as fans, it's usually to like enter that world and kind of forget about this one. But for us kind of taking these sacred reading practices from Christianity and from Judaism, my co-host is a, is, is a, a Jewish atheist. Um, and so we draw on those two traditions. Um, we we really try and share with the listener and, and in the book with the reader a different way of engaging text. So mm-hmm. we translate the traditional four steps of Lectio, uh, which you know Guijo II put together as a, a Carthusian monk in the 13th and 14th century. We translate that a little bit, just like your youth pastor skills. Um, so we, we, we ask people to pick a sentence, right? And this is where you can do that wonderful evangelical thing of pick a random sentence anywhere and let it shape your life. Uh, <laughs> but and, and, and our argument is that it doesn't have to just be with the Bible, but you can do it with your with your favorite piece of, of fiction. Um, and then ask yourself four questions. Firstly, what's happening narratively? So this is the way we would usually engage with, with a story, right? Understanding different characters, what's going on. Then to think about it allegorically, to kind of open our mind and its imaginative space and think about what other stories or poems or pictures or movies does this remind us, remind us of to kind of open that that sense of connection uh, beyond the rational mind. Then, and this is where it gets really interesting to me, is we ask people to reflect on their own life, right? To use the text as a mirror and to say, is there something in my own experience that connects to this text? So suddenly you might have been reading about Hermione Granger, but now you're suddenly thinking about your your sister and her experience of depression, for example. And then the final stage, you know, traditionally you would ask, what is God asking me to do through this text? The way that we ask that question is, um, you know, what is this text inviting me to do? So, mm-hmm. so you started with a, a book about, you know, a magical school where there's lots of danger uh, and you're ending up thinking about, oh, I should really call my sister because I haven't spoken yeah. to her in a couple of days. So, and, and for me, that's just a, 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 such a wonderful practice. And, you know, we've been doing that podcast now for, for five years and it, it's remarkable that and and here's the secret mason i'm i like harry potter i'm not like a harry potter obsessy like I, I it's not my magical world per se but it is a story that i like very much right i like it enough to keep practicing the, the, these sets of practices with because we're reading the books but we're really reading our own lives that's what keeps the mm. books fresh is mm-hmm. because our lives change the books always have something new to help us see about our own experience um and so you know vanessa and i love leading those practices with people who love the books because they always find out you know new ideas from the books or, or see new angles uh, but mostly because it allows them to engage in the kind of reflection and community building and even mobilization um, that comes comes from this, this sacred practice. Um, the final thing I'll say is that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, 
our listeners self-organized into a COVID mutual aid society. And so for me, it's just an amazing example of what happens when you practice these things together is that they pull you beyond just the practice itself into you know, a beloved community, into a place where people really do things for each other and 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 for the good of all. So I, I feel even more confident <laughs> about being like a, a, a kind of evangelist for spiritual practices, even if they're outside of a traditional kind of church space. I love that. That is so cool. How do you see the power of ritual being inspiring and liberating theology? It feels um, very contextual to me. Like it, 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 I really hope people feel that they have permission to experience their own lives as sacred, um, to not feel constrained about what they think it should be or what society and power structures have told them it should look like, but to, but to, to really experience their own sense of, of where the sacred lives and how, how to be in touch with that regularly. I, I tried very much to, to point to um, some scholars and some theologians that, that challenge structures of oppression, certainly racism and certainly capitalism. Um, but that's a that's a tricky line, I have to say, in a, in a popular, you know, and hopefully popular book, in the sense that it's meant for, for a majority of readers mm-hmm. who are not necessarily engaged in political questions and certainly not something like liberation theology in one way or another, um, at, at least not as an academic discipline. Um, that, that, was, that was something I, I want to get better at. Like that's something I want to keep practicing, certainly in my writing. Um, but you know, when I when the copy review process happened, the copy editor wrote back and said, "Do you really want to say white supremacy here?" Uh, and this was a couple of years ago. Mm. And I was like, "Yeah, I, that's really important to me that to use language like that in a book like this, um, which you know, from the cover from the cover looks like fluffy and fun and like you know, <laughs> put, put it next to your cup of mint tea and your crystal, uh, which you can. Um, but to, but to have that kind of more political piece in there was was really important to mm. me." Last question, Casper. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Well, please check out the the, the book, uh, The Power of Ritual. You can find it in your library. Or uh, I think there's a great deal on Kindle over these next couple of months. So if you want a, oh. a, a downloadable version, check that out. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at CasperTK, where I mostly spend my time liking Mason's tweets. <laughs> that, you know, that's one soulful practice. It can't be all that helpful to you. <laughs> Well, Casper, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. You are just such a, a wonderful human being. I really adore the work that you're doing in the world. I remember coming across you a few years ago when I was doing some work um, with Augsburg and we were reading your How We Gather stuff. And uh, I was just fascinated because a lot of the questions and a lot of the things that you were finding in those studies were exactly the kind of things that I've been really considering for a long time. And so I, I just really love the work. And then for you to be able to write a little bit more about it in this book that I absolutely love and will absolutely be sharing with lots of different people, uh, I, Thanks, I just man. adore it. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about it. Thanks, man. I'm going to go check out The National again. <laughs> <laughs> so you met Mr. Wonderful Isn't he wonderful You thought you had it all to If you would like to connect with Casper and Stephanie Lambring and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. 
And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.